Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, innovators, and those doing the boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. I am excited to welcome Wendy Doyle, the president and CEO of United We. And since 1991, United We has invested wisely in the success of women of all ages. They envision a world where all women are empowered to strengthen America's economy and democracy. And United We tackles barriers to women's economic growth and unlocks women's economic potential through research, policy solutions, and civic engagement. Wendy, thank you so much for joining me for tea today. And it's my pleasure and honor to be with you. Well, I want to start by giving people an understanding of United We. So um, let's talk about where do you work? Where do you operate geographically? So geographically, we're headquartered in Kansas City, Missouri. And our, we serve our research policy work in Missouri and Kansas. And our appointments project, which we're going to talk about, is scaling across the country. So a broader, a broader reach. Fantastic. Okay, that was going to be one of my questions about that project too. Um, and then topically, what are some of the issues that you engage in? We are a nonpartisan organization, and we are really focused on economic development for women and their families. And that's really broad, Kristen, um, but what that, how we have defined that and have really focused from a policy perspective is around pay equity, paid family leave, women's entrepreneurship, um, the workplace are really some of our priorities for us. Great. Okay. And then uh, I understand last year, United We went through a name change. So you were the Women's Foundation yes. and United We. And I would love to hear what prompted that name change. It's a great question and one that was not easy to answer. You know, should we be changing our name? And as you highlighted, we are celebrating 30 years as an organization. And the evolution of where the organization started in 1991 to where we are today is looks really different. And the Women's Foundation, when we launched in 1991, as you mentioned, it was really to um, secure funding, philanthropic dollars from women to be able to invest back into the community. And that model really has evolved. And so as we were evolving and as we were just putting some finishing touches to a five-year strategic plan, as we were having conversations, not only here in the Midwest, but also nationally, we really identified our name isn't really reflective of who we are today. So we really went, started the journey of evaluating that and came up with United We to be more inclusive um, to really be more about not only is it women, but we need men to be part of this conversation as well. And the WE stands for Women's Empowerment. So United Women's Empowerment um, and short United WE to really start to tell more of our story of our research policy and civic leadership work. 
And I like that it harkens back to some of our um, founding documents, you know, with the United We Stand and, and, and that whole premise as well. We took that into consideration for sure. It was, you know, a, a hard, difficult um, nine month journey, but we are really excited to see where it goes. And we just, this is really new. So we just um, renamed and rebranded the organization at the end of September. Oh, okay, very new then, great. All right. Okay, so you mentioned a couple issues and for our audience who joined us for the first tea of this month, that tea was very much focused on um, I would say harm to women. Uh, so, you know, physical harm, um, gender mutilation, child marriage. Uh, and so I, we, the Jackson Center wanted to showcase other aspects of some of those equity gaps as it pertains to women and girls. And that's why I'm excited to talk to you about the work that you have been doing because you, and I, I love this about your organization, you say in uh, on your website, you're trying to tackle the, the problem from all angles. So from as many different ways as possible. Yes, most definitely. Most so, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, most definitely. You're exactly right. <laughs> and, <All> the, angles. <laughs> and I think that's great. And I love, I feel, and please, by all means, correct me if this is not correct. It feels like a lot of what you do starts with the research. You're really trying to dig into what are the challenges that women are facing to get a handle on where do we even go from that? So I would love for you to talk a little bit about that research premise. Really, that was a foundational principle of the organization back in 1991. And they really based launching on data and looking at you know, charitable giving in the, the region. And at that point really identified only 4% of giving was going to support women and girls organizations, which really gave them the case for support to launch. And we really took that, but really accelerated it. And as you pointed out, it really is a foundational principle for us as an organization and really helps us to have informed conversations, but really data-driven solutions is what we're really driving toward. Um, and we spent a we have spent a lot of time in the research space, not only qualitative, but also um, quantitative. Um, research as well and partnering with higher ed institutions here in the Midwest to really help be our research partners. Um, we have done an additional research study just looking at what's happening in the Midwest with the John Hopkins um, University looking at breast cancer um, comorbidities. But we really believe that it is imperative to have the data to, and facts to really be informed to look at you know, solutions moving forward. So we've invested in the last um, seven years into 19 research studies and policy briefs um, to really just help us around getting our arms around this big topic of economy. Well, and I think so I'm gonna dig into some of those. And you mentioned uh, in your uh, introduction about the topics that United We works on that equal pay um, is, is uh, I'm not sure if it's at the top of the list, but it, it's pretty it's pretty high up there. And you and I had a conversation when we were setting this up about how um, oftentimes um, uh, people who are working on issues run the risk of that when the big thing happens, um, people are like, great, we're done, the problem is solved, and money and attention sort of shifts focus to, to what they see as other big problems. Um, and so I want to talk to you about equal pay, especially because at least the Missouri governor 
signed an executive order in December of 2015, if I'm remembering that correctly, right. to promote gender pay equity. Um, so I guess the let me just start with the open, very open question of how's that going? It's a great question. And you think about that happening in the Midwest and pretty conservative thinking. Um, you know, it's pretty remarkable sitting here where we are today and looking backwards. <laughs> um, you know, it was interesting how that happened. And I'm really proud of, you know, where it took us and where it led us to get getting, as you pointed out, maybe not the big thing, but a small thing. And it started by having a legislator in Missouri who really, we, I was sharing a research study, the status of women in Missouri, and we identified that as a, as a barrier, pay equity. And it really resonated with him because he was raised by a single mom. And she worked for an organization that she knew she was getting for the same job, getting paid less than the man. And it was personal for him. And he really was um, believed in us to really file some legislation that really led us to this discussion. And the governor started watching it, watching this. And for this to happen in Missouri was just pretty remarkable, but we did get a hearing, we testified. It did not move forward out of the House of Representatives, but it did catch the governor's attention. And he really said, you know what? He had um, daughters and said, I, don't, I wanna make this better for my, my future daughters and for what they may be experiencing. So he signed executive order 15-09. We invited him to sign that executive order actually at our annual event because we wanted people to witness who may not have had that opportunity before actually seeing, you know, a really piece of, you know, you know, law happening. And he called for the best practice guidelines to be established and really cited us as an organization and the University of Missouri to create those best practice guidelines for the state. And once we had those completed, then on equal pay day in 2016, then he issued a directive to really call for the Office of Administration in Missouri to start implementing the best practice guidelines. And Kristen, what it really came down to are some just some, some key things that any organization can do at any time without being a law. Um, one being just an evaluation, you know, of just taking a moment, taking the time to just evaluate, do we have discrepancies in pay between women and men? Something really simple that anyone can do. And then secondly, really starting to move toward paycheck transparency. And we know there are several states that have already passed laws that this is not a challenge, but we wanted to at least get the idea out into the public sector. And then the third is really looking at um, banning salary history from employment applications. And that's really been the easiest um, opportunity for us to start really moving that piece forward. And we have had success not only at the state level for all state future state employees applying for a job, but also having conversations here in the heartland with mayors, county executives, just encouraging them to follow suit as a way to get built momentum mm -hmm. and keeping the issue out in the forefront. Well, that's great. And are you seeing the momentum? I, I know the last year has been a little weird, um, but we can't stop working on these issues. So I'm just curious, how, how, how is that progress going? 
you know, it's going surprisingly well, although, you know, as you cited, just a lot of distraction with elected officials, just with the COVID and social unrest that we've all experienced throughout the year. But it's but conversations are still occurring. And we did have Jackson County, Missouri step up and implement this recently, um, the banning salary history. So, you know, conversations are still occurring. Um, and we hope we can continue to see momentum. But something very simple, a call to action to your audience, very simple to do to take back to employers. Hey, let's just evaluate and something really easy just to take ban take salary history off of employment applications. I appreciate your your focus on practicality. That is something we we try to talk to our audience about as well to so help them understand how can they can take these conversations and and put them into into their own lives and into their own community. So I appreciate that. Um, another topic, paid family leave. And so uh, you know, I think that, I feel as if the conversation around pay equity has become public enough, universal enough that people understand that there is an issue and that women, you know, on average, depending on, on their, on, unfortunately, on their uh, ethnicity or their race are paid some percentage of what a man is paid. Paid family leave feels a little less on the radar to me. Um, in terms of, of how this impacts a woman's ability to, to for economic growth, um, you know, for her own personal growth. So why, why is it, why is paid family leave important? This really became important to us based on really listening to women and men across the states here in the Midwest. And we sat down, we really had candid conversations and this, this really surfaced as just a solution. And, and then it was once we um, did some additional research and policy brief work on this particular topic, we really identified no one else was really talking about it here in the Midwest. So something that was important to us. But if we really want to, you know, a couple of things that we heard, one, if once um, children are born to have a healthy start on life, if they have the bonding time with mothers and fathers, it really sets them up for a successful future, just in those early, early stages, those first few weeks. And we heard loud and clear and time and time again, how families were cobbling together, even when, um, you know, mom was preparing for maternity leave, putting vacation time and sick days together and then FM in LA and then, you know, trying to make it all work. And then when she was going to come back to work and, and it just was an extreme barrier to women wanting to go back to work. And then secondly, you know, the, just not, maybe not having enough time. And then, and then fathers wanting to have their time with the children too. And just hearing how families were significantly impacted and, you know, looking at household budget and making decisions based on how much time they would have. And then when would the childcare switch flip and how that was gonna impact um, the household budget. So we started paying attention to this loud and clear. We also um, heard, particularly from men, it was not only the beginning of life, but the end of life. And looking at when aging parents, um, women outlive men, 
and typically have a seven to eight year life span, life year span, may not have been participating in the workforce as long as men, so may outlive their money, and men being really concerned about what am I going to do with my mom? And is my mom going to have to come here? And then what do I do when I need to take her to a doctor's appointment? So just having not putting families, women and men in position to have to choose between work and family was really the priority for us. So we, we, we shared a policy brief with both governors here in Missouri and Kansas and quickly started having really informed data-driven conversations. And the Missouri governor stepped up and did an executive order um, for paid family leave policy for state employees. It was the first executive order in the country. Oh. It or not. And it called for 100% wage replacement for six weeks off for the birth or adoption of a child and three weeks off if you were a secondary caregiver, meaning if both spouses worked for the government, um, you would have some time off. That really signaled to, you know, the community to very much like banning salary history, this is something you can do too. And to take this moment in time to, um, you know, review your policies for your organization. It's really become a workforce strategy for the state of Missouri, as well as Kansas, looking at retention and recruitment for uh, millennials. This is something they're really paying attention to. So it's, it's something that then we went very much like our other practice with pay equity, having conversations with other elected officials, city, county level, and have seen some great success there too. That's great. Are you also seeing that this type of government leadership is leading to change in the private sector as well? So companies are paying more attention to this or the organizations in Missouri and Kansas? It definitely helps. And um, the fact that if the government can do it, you can do it. Um, what I also like about this topic is that everyone had the experience through the CARES Act during COVID-19 of a paid family leave federal policy. I love where the direction this is going. Certainly with the, the new administration, there is you know, discussion about looking at, you know, could this become a federal mandate? And um, you know, legislative here in the Midwest, this would be a, a heavy lift for us. We know that at this moment in time. We also know that it's not a one size fits all. There are small businesses that simply don't have that luxury to be able to offer that. But in theory, um, it's pulled really high with um, Missourians in Kansas that in theory, everyone believes this is really important. And for me personally, we're the only industrialized country in the world who doesn't have a paid family leave policy. And I really see this as an economic barrier, but an opportunity to really, you know, again, not put families in position to have to choose between work and caring for loved ones. Well, and then, so I would say a related issue then is also childcare, um, and which is another topic that, that United We is working on. And uh, there have been a lot of articles, I feel, um, more recently, uh, as we're hopefully coming out of the pandemic, um, about the disproportionate toll on women and their employment, and also likely the disproportionate toll on their recovery and reentry into the workplace. And a lot of that seems to focus around some of these um, pay conversations we've been having, but also the childcare conversation because women still tend to shoulder the, the vast majority of, of the childcare responsibilities. 
Um, and this feels, as I was doing my research, like a somewhat of a new effort for, for you all. So I just wanted to see what, what you're thinking about or what you're working on with regard to that. As you pointed out, one of the research studies that we did when COVID happened is that we wanted to understand what the impact was to women. So we quickly went to work and put together a data dashboard just helping us understand the impact. And whether you were an hourly worker or paid worker, as you cited, significant impact to women. And again, putting put in a position to have to choose job or family. And as we know from the Department of Labor, women are dropping out of the workforce at a rapid rate. In the month of December, it was almost 100% across the country that women were filing unemployment claims um, because of this very issue. And not only is it, you know, the accessibility, but the workforce is primarily women. The childcare providers are primarily women. And we recently hosted a childcare provider roundtable to help us understand the significant impact that COVID was having. And there are, you know, in some cases, there are six, um, you know, six children on a waiting list for one spot that's open in the childcare facility just with you know, the new precautions for of COVID-19. And then with schools being remote, then, you know, children not having the luxury of going to school and then not having the after-school care or the childcare provider, then this really has also put additional stress on families and primarily women, as you've identified. So we, this is a new space for us, but again, one that at this moment in time, we have to bring back up to the, to the surface. And we really see the COVID-19 recovery for women, that the, the childcare is the solution that we have to solve. We have to solve this in order for women to get back to work and back, um, you know, back in the workforce. The other concern that we have as a result of this is because women have dropped out, that means they aren't contributing to their 401ks, to their retirement plans, and the, the financial impact of this is early, too early to um, be studied, but the long-term impact of this, we know researchers are already starting to think about what's this going to mean for, for women, you know, in their elder, when they're elderly. Mm -hmm. So right at this moment in time, there's, it's, it's complex, it's not easy um, to solve, but we know it's critical, um, you know, especially looking at infant care here in the Midwest, and I'm sure it's the same across the country, the cost of infant care is equivalent to in-state college tuition. And it's just extremely expensive and competitive. And again, um, you know, always a waiting list for those openings to become available. So again, very complex issue, um, but something that we must pay attention to to see where we can go. I did want to share, you know, just a couple of interesting thoughts that companies we heard from um, who stepped up to, to, to get on this immediately. One is an organization called Cox Health, um, and they're a health system here in the Midwest. And they had a gym facility on their um, hospital campus, and they quickly converted that within a one week time period to a classroom so that the healthcare workers could bring their children there. They had 
they hired teachers that were certified to be able to provide some oversight. So I do like the idea that there has been some creativity around what this looks like. And I think that's something that shouldn't go unnoticed. Another company cited they were providing a stipend or an opportunity for employees to apply for a grant as much as up to $2,000 um, a pharmaceutical company to be able to keep women in participating in the workforce. So I do think, you know, not only are United, not only is United We thinking about it, but I love the idea that companies are starting to be creative and think about, you know, what they can do um, to be able to help solve this issue too. Well, and you mentioned that researchers are starting to pay attention to, you know, what does this mean when this generation of women are ready to retire in terms of their financial capabilities? There was a statistic, I believe, on your website that they get 78% of mothers are the sole or co-breadwinner for a family. And so I think we also need to be thinking about just in terms of our immediate economic recovery, if you're missing that spending power, if you're missing that I, you know, I guess it's actually on both sides. If you're missing those women contributing to the work and to the recovery, and you're also missing their ability to buy and do things, um, then the economic recovery will be slower because, um, you know, if we assume approximately 50% of the workforce is women, then you're, you have sidelined approximately 50% of the people who can help you recover. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've also heard not only, um, you know, from the workplace, from, you know, single moms, sole providers, but also the entrepreneurs. And if the child care, if the child care facility isn't open, then they have no place to take their children. So it's, it is, you know, the economic ripple effect and compounding effect is significant. Well, and this is a good segue into, because one of the efforts that United We has worked on that I find um, very inspirational, and I think probably really low on our on most people's radar scale, is the occupational licensing um, question and sort of the transfer transferability of, of um, licenses um, and to some extent some of the extra hoops that people have needed to jump through in order to get a license when whatever it is that they're trying to do or get registered for isn't actually even taught in, in that particular certification course. And I'm of course thinking of the, of the hair braiders um, on that one. I think what I like about this is um, this feels to me like a universal challenge. Like this is very much, and as you've mentioned, United We focus, you know, focus on women, but it's not just about women. Um, and I, um, I come from a, a military family um, and my, my father was in the reserves. Um, and so just the idea of also helping veterans and military families through this, uh, I find very appealing. So I would love to hear about the work that United We is doing on this occupational licensing. This really came about, you know, it connects with the appointments project, which I know we're going to talk about, but at the state level, boards and commissions oversee the professional licensing of uh, most professions. And so it really has a thread to that work as well. So um, we started looking at this based on having um, some listening sessions and really hearing from women that when this was pre-COVID, when they would think of a solution around the childcare challenge, what did they gravitate to? And it was launching their own business, being you know, in control and at their time and having some flexibility. Now, we all know that that's 
being a business owner, you know, it could be pretty much 24 seven um, and may not be realistic. But it was interesting to hear how women of all income levels, were, they were gravitating to that. So that's when we really wanted to, to start to learn more about what are some of the significant barriers. You know, there's always access to capital, but where we saw that we could make a difference was definitely in the occupational licensing or professional license. We know as we were learning and um, you know, researching that women hold a professional license at two thirds of a higher rate than men do. So you know, really we wanted to lean in on that and knew that there was a lot of work to do. So we really started with, again, informing the governor and then having the governor, um, he signed an executive order to create a task force to start to evaluate every board and commission that oversaw a professional license in the state and to look at what we could do to reduce the red tape. And um, that work was, was really significant. But then we really started to look at identifying professions that, as you cited, that were really, um, you know, women driven and the cosmetology field is prevalent with women and leaned in on the reducing the requirements to be a hair braider in the state of Missouri, which, you know, hair braiding, as you cited, wasn't even part of the cosmetology curriculum. Yet, you know, nine months of school, minimum of $13,000 full time, so you couldn't have a job on the side, was seemed a little, um, you know, challenging, and we were successful in getting that to the governor's desk. And now the requirement is to take a health safety test online and um, submit your application with a $25 fee and you're a licensed hair braider in Missouri. So we feel really good about that work. Although I will say it was really um, contentious, you know, in the state and very interesting how, um, you know, that, how that can be. But we then went on to look at low-income professions, students just graduating from college, and then, as you pointed out, military families and reducing those barriers. And then just last year, we looked at a model that the state of Arizona had um, and really introducing reciprocity across the board, which means at any time with your license, you could come to the state and immediately begin practicing your profession. And Missouri became the second state in the country to have that reciprocity law. So we're really excited to see where it goes. This session where we're continuing work in both Missouri and Kansas on occupational licensing, there is a lot of work to do in this space. And when we're talking about some of the professional certifications, just for clarity, um, and I know this won't be a universal list, but I'm assuming we're talking about teachers and nurses. Nurses, doctors, architects, engineers, um, private investigators, who knew? <laughs> <Okay>. Appraisers, <laughs> real estate appraisers, just across the board, if you are required to have a license or become certified in some capacity with the state requirements, um, that's what we wanted to reduce. Interesting. Okay. And I'm curious, you said it was uh, for the, and maybe this was specific to the hair braiders. Um, you said that there was a fair amount of contention around that issue too. I'm yeah. curious, just what were some of the pain points? You would think about who may be um, opposed to it. And it definitely was the cosmetology school industry and, you know, understood that, you know, it's part of their business model. Um, but in the end, we were we were able to get to a happy medium, and you know everyone agreed that this was the right thing to do, including the cosmetology schools. 
so we did get it we did get it across the finish line it did take us a couple of years <laughs> well, you know i can certainly understand that revenue as a as a pain point if you've been counting <laughs> on that i think what i like about that too and i i'm making a a, a guesstimate here that i have to imagine that the majority of the women or people who were looking to be hair braiders were also women of color. Um, and so that that was improving some of those, advancing some of those economic goals as well, focused on this is a traditionally underserved and taken advantage of population and removing some of those barriers. Absolutely. And the average salary in, in the Missouri was um, about 18,000. So if they were spending $13,000 to go to school, not even learning how to be a hair braider, and then an annual salary of about 18,000, most of these women were having to take get a loan mm -hmm. to be able to go to the cosmetology school to be a licensed profession. And paying back the loan and just the economics of it, it was gonna take almost 20 years to get the student loan, the loan paid back. So the economics of it, once we made the case to the policymakers, they're absolutely became clear. It's the right thing to do to deregulate this. That's wonderful. All right. Now I want to talk about the women or the appointments project. Um, and this, I think, started about seven years ago, almost seven years ago. Um, and I would love to know the background. So what were the conversations that were going on that helped you realize, hey, there's a really significant gap here and, and we can we can help help this? This really started as we were spending time in the state capitals and really questioning where are the women? And, um, you know, we've seen significant progress over the seven years of, of changing that complexion. But at that moment in time, very few women, especially here in the Midwest. And so we wanted to understand why and invested in a research study looking at the barriers for women's civic engagement. It was a quantitative and qualitative research study um, and really learned a lot. Um, and the number one reason women weren't engaging this way or running for elected office is they wanted to be asked to serve. When asked, they would say yes. And the second is that, that women weren't thinking about this, you know, boards and commissions and getting involved at the government level as a way to give back. They were thinking a nonprofit, their children's school, their house of worship as the place where they volunteered their and gave their time. So it really became clear to us if we could, um, as a solution based on the data, create an opportunity for women to get these appointments, this engagement may give them the confidence and the knowledge to want to go on and run for elected office. So it's really for us, we see the, this as really building the pipeline of our future elected women um, to run for elected office. So we launched the appointments project with that. I think the most fascinating thing as the number one reason is women want to be asked to serve is the lack of confidence that women are having in great qualified women all across the country are ready to give and serve, but really are undervaluing their experience, their expertise, and their knowledge. Um, so this really is an, a, a vehicle to encourage women to step up and you're ready and we can find a place for you, a way to give back. So we launched this in 2014 in the city of Kansas City in a pilot program with the, with the mayor 
um, here and really wanted first and foremost did an evaluation of the composition of the boards and commissions. And when we launched the project, we were at about 35% representation of women. And when he left office, we were getting you know, close to the 50% mark. So really starting to see the needle move, but with intentionality by the elected official. Mm -hmm. The objective for us is we want all boards and commissions to, to be reflective of the population, to really look like what our population looks like and to have that representation around the table. And we know that through another research study, when you have um, diverse opinions at the table, you can make the best decisions for everyone. You may not be thinking about something some way. So really wanting to get um, new points of view around the decision-making table. Um, and then to, you know, overall, the objective of this is to build public trust um, in the government. And this, you know, if you have healthy representation, our data shows that it will build public trust in the decision-making that's happening. And, and that certainly makes sense to me. And also, you know, if you know your neighbor down the street is on this commission or on this board, that also gives that probably uh, gives that board or that commission a little more credibility because you actually know somebody who is serving on it. Exactly. Yeah. So it works in a couple of ways. Not only are we, um, you know, educating women about this opportunity and our, our webinars, our virtual trainings are, are free. So if at any time, if your audience wants to just kind of check that out, there is that opportunity. Um, but we also are working with the elected officials and just really helping them understand and make sure that, that barriers are reduced to make it easy for anyone to be able to engage and apply at any time. So that's been a, that's been a fascinating um, project in itself. And I know that you continue to work with other city mayors or um, town elected officials. Is, is it the case that there also needs to be some education there as to um, the need to ask women and why there is that need? Are you finding that? Absolutely. Um, there is definitely, again, most people don't think about a board or a commission as a way to, to share their time and talent. And this is creating that awareness is really important. So again, working with the elected official in a public way to be able to highlight this is an opportunity that is exists and we want to engage you. Um, I will say our first, we have about 28% representation of women of color um, in our, on our point, on all of our appointments, we have had over 140 women appointed today at city, county, state level. Um, the elected officials like it because we're bringing new faces, new backgrounds, new expertise to the table. It is a, you know, it's something that every elected official walks into in a new administration, you're thinking about, you know, getting to work and making sure everyone's safe, but the boards and commissions piece is a responsibility, a significant responsibility, and we are um, an opportunity. You know, we are we make it easy for the elected official, and um, it's been it's been exciting to see where this will go. And then I think, and you mentioned some workshops on this. It sounds, I believe, and I think you're in the middle of a four part workshop right now of how helping women understand sort of what the opportunities are here. 
Um, I like that there was uh, some pieces about building their confidence to, so to help them understand how their skills translate into something like this. So are you finding, it sounds to me like those two pieces of, the, of this are very critical for the success. Absolutely. And you're referencing a partnership that we developed with the University of Kansas and really kind of testing this idea of the appointments project and then, you know, giving some tools to maybe want to go on and run for elected office. So we're creating a little pilot here in Kansas and testing. But the confidence is really, it's really a significant barrier for women. Um, the most qualified women still are questioning, am I ready? Am I prepared for that? Should I be running for elected office? Should I wait and put this on the back burner? It's really fascinating to me to, to see that. Um, but this is, and again, what we're also seeing is women helping women, which we love. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if they find that they have lots of, you know, maybe a work project or something going on with their family that's now's the not right now's not the right time they're encouraging other women to get involved and that's what we want is if it's not right for you at this moment in time encourage someone else to be a part of this as well i will say the the movement really we saw a spike um, you know, after the 2016 election. And then in the midterms in 2018, the pink wave, we saw, you know, significant interest again in the appointments project. And now we're, you know, once again, after this general election, we're seeing real interest in, um, you know, ways to give back and a lot of interest, not just running for elected office, but in, very interested in the boards and commissions work. So it's interesting to see the cycle um, and where women want to plug in based on, you know, what's happening, um, you know, environmentally. Well, and there's, yeah, I think with a lot of this work, what we're finding is that cyclo cyclicalness is there. And so, you know, for me, it's also something I think we need to be careful of is you sort of get this groundswell. And so you have this increased participation and then everybody assumes that's just how it is. Um, but without care and attention, that participation then falls off again. And so it's continuously needing to evaluate our things where we want them to be. Absolutely. And Kristen, what I'm really seeing that I'm encouraged by is just the, um, the engagement of young people, our future generations, really interested at every level of the political participation. And um, young women that have that confidence that, you know, I think, wow, I didn't have confidence at that age. But I'm really encouraged um, by what I'm seeing about, you know, how they want to get involved, the questions that they're answering, um, the confidence that they have. And it, it gives me hope for what, what lies ahead for us. That's great. I was just having a conversation with a friend recently that if I could go back and bottle the confidence of 16 year old me. Um, I, I think I could have taken over the world by now. So, <laughs> well, and then um, before we open it up to audience questions, and I hope the audience is thinking about some questions, I do want to get to one very recent initiative of yours um, that is the Legacy of Women initiative. Um, and similarly, you and I were, uh, I was joking with you when we were talking initially that um, I had 
been watching this weekend, the food, the built America and the men who built America. And I was waiting for the program of where are the women who built America? And one of my friends said, oh, you mean the women who behind the men who built America? And I was like, no, nope, that's absolutely not what I meant. <laughs> and I feel like this legacy of women initiative um, is speaking to me from on a very personal level as a result. <laughs> For us, what happens here, we started to really pay attention what our what our strategy is. We really want to bring forward our past history of women, and especially for young women to be able to see who they could aspire to be, and that these women achieved it, and that we want you to continue that that path and that progress. So the legacies of women for United We is we started having you know first started having conversations with our Missouri Department of Natural Resources and identified here in Missouri that there wasn't a state park named after a woman. And we started um, really probing further and having really, you know, intelligent, good conversations with the department. And they went back in their history and said, you know what, there's no reason that we shouldn't be bringing forward. There are women, um, you know, that, that we should be identifying. In our first park that we renamed, the woman actually donated the land to the state um, in honor of the memory of her husband who had passed away and it was her land. Mm -hmm. And we've gone back and through public hearings and engaging the community, making sure that everyone would be okay with including the woman's name. And it's a practice that we will be continuing in Missouri, but also in Kansas as well, as there's not a state park named after a woman. And then recently we um, were able to induct um, a woman into the Missouri Hall of Fame. And this was the first county clerk in the, in the United States coming from Jasper County. And in honor of the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment, um, we were able to get Annie White Baxter um, inducted with a bronze statue um, to recognize that she oversaw the very elections that she couldn't even vote in. And she was in a, a, a county clerk in 1876. Wow. That's great. I, I love that progress. And now I feel like I need to go back and research how many states or how many uh, state parks or, or, or local parks in, in our area are named after women um, and then make a little bit of noise if, if those numbers are, are, are as I suspect them to be. Um, we do have a question from the audience. So I'm going to ask that. And so Helena has asked, and this is going back to our entrepreneurs discussion, um, since the skill set of entrepreneurs is generally passed down through generations and women and certainly those businesses and women have not traditionally been in that pipeline, um, are you working to equip women to understand and face the risks of entrepreneurship and help them help them understand um, I guess help them understand the risks. And this also is the path forward to freedom and wealth and the ability to pass on those businesses as well. There are lots, that's a great question. There are lots of organizations out there that I feel like that are providing that tangible, hands-on support um, and experience on how to overcome that or for to, to think through that before launching the business. The role that we're playing is really from the policy perspective and looking at what we can do to clear the path for women to become the entrepreneurs. As an example, we really want are focusing in on access to capital, especially for women of color and launching their business 
they need capital. And we know that women across the border overlooked and men always are getting the investment. So that is an example. But the tactical piece, there are lots of great resources out there. The National Association of Women Business Owners, NABO, they have chapters all across the country as well as a national resources. That would be a great place to go to to get some of that um, support or data and information. That's right. Okay, thank you. All right, lightning round. As, as we let our audience ask some questions, here's the lightning round question. What progress do you hope to see in the next year? I hope to see progress around paid family leave and childcare. And I also hope to see more women on boards and commissions across the, across the country. Okay, I'm going to drill down into this a little bit. What progress do you hope to see on paid family leave and um, and equal pay and childcare? I would love to see a federal mandate on the paid family leave. I would love to see everyone in the United States be able to take advantage of a paid family leave policy. And I do think there's some interesting discussions that are happening federally. I think there is that possibility. Um, and I would like to continue to see, you know, here in the, the heartland, more at a municipal level, cities implementing a paid family leave policy um, to start to see some of that systemic change at a municipal level and implement that. And I think we can do that. Okay, great. What gives you hope that progress will be made? What gives me hope is that we have seen, you know, great progress, um, you know, especially as we're seeing more women participating um, in the political process, that we will see more policies that are implemented for women and their families by just having more elected um, women, more elected officials that are women, and more women participating in the political process. That gives me hope. Well, and I think uh, we've had a few conversations with other of our tea guests of just that representation itself is, is so important because um, it's hard to be a pioneer and we certainly need those people. But for a lot of us, unless we see somebody like us doing that or in a role or something, it, it may not even occur to us that that is something we could do or that should be something to which we're aspiring. It's so interesting, the childcare piece really hits home, especially for women who wanna run for elected office. And there are some interesting discussions occurring. It will, you know, state capitals have, you know, a child on-site childcare facility available. So it will attract, you know, a, a younger demographic, both women and men to run for elected office. So I'm really encouraged by, again, the creativity um, and as you said, if we can see who we, you know, if we could see the role model, then I think that would encourage others to want to think about it as well and get serious about it. So I'm hopeful. Good. Who else is doing good work to make progress in this area? Oh, there's so many organizations that are doing such great work. I would cite an organization down in Springfield, Missouri. Um, that's part of Missouri State University and an organization called Rosie. And Rosie is not only an incubator for entrepreneurs, um, so they have you know resources on site, but really encouraging um, women to engage in the civic in, um, you know boards and commissions, but also serving on nonprofit boards and then thinking about a corporate board component too. So I think that's an organization that's doing 
really great work. Um, I think our universities are doing great work from a research perspective. So I'd like to highlight and do a shout out for them. They're doing really great work. That's perfect. I have actually been to Springfield, Missouri. Um, I have been to, I uh, was a practicing attorney in a, in a former life and uh, spent uh, several months um, touring the various places, uh, various cities in Missouri um, with an eye towards a construction project that we were working on. And so I have been to a lot of <laughs> interesting places. <laughs> my, my depth of Missouri is much, is much greater than people might expect it to be. Show me state. <laughs> um, and so we're always looking to give our listeners um, ideas on how they can educate themselves on, on things as well. So I, this is probably my favorite of the lightning round questions. What, what are you reading, listening to, who are you following that you would suggest for our audience? I have really become intrigued with the 19th and the 19th um, is a, I, you know, participate in some of their webinars, but I get a daily update in my inbox and you can sign up for their listserv. So the 19th is really focused again on women's political participation. So that's one that's interesting. Um, I listen to the daily, the podcast, just really fine getting, you know, quick updates there. What I'm reading that I, I'm really enjoying is a book um, on Eleanor Roosevelt, the, the David Michaelis um, book called Eleanor. And what, an, what a trailblazer, what a remarkable woman. And I'm learning so much about, you know, I'm early in the book, but I'm really intrigued by what I'm seeing and reading. And um, I enjoy biographies and seeing these great women who've really paved the way for us. Um, so that's another one. And then a great book by Melinda Gates, The Moment of Lift definitely, you know, gives full circle and a unique perspective. So I think that's interesting as well. Um, and then Harvard Business Review is another one that I enjoy just doing, you know, a quick check and, and stay current and up to date. No, that's perfect. Eleanor is a, a personal hero of mine. Also, you know, time-wise for Jackson, very appropriate since uh, FDR is who largely steered uh, Justice Jackson's career in, in DC. Um, so yeah, so it's, uh, that was one of the, the many, uh, kismet things about coming to work at the Jackson Center was also just how much time I get to spend, um, learning more about Roosevelt and their interactions as well. And Wendy, thank you again so much for being with us and challenging us and giving us some really great ideas of how we can implement and what we could be looking for in our own communities. Kristen, thank you so much for having me. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. And we know these conversations never really end. So we'll keep doing the work and I hope to chat with you again in the future. Sounds great. Thank you for having me. Thank you. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, presented in collaboration with Chautauqua Institution. Our program's associate producer is Nicole Gustafson. Bryson Barnes is our producer and composer. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this program was drawn from Tea Time with the Jackson Center, a Facebook live event produced by the Jackson Center. The mission of the Robert H. Jackson Center is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Supreme Court Justice and Chief U.S. Prosecutor at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. 
As a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of future or previous guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe. Thank you. CHQ Assembly is made possible through the collaboration and innovation of Chautauqua Institution's full-time and part-time staff, seasonal staff, and many volunteers, as well as participants like you, whose engagement, gifts, and subscriptions sustain our mission.